Let me invite you to turn with me now back to the 33rd and the 34th chapters of the book of Exodus, where we find the children of Israel near the beginning of their journey to the land of promise, but also on the heels of a monstrous breach of the second commandment, the forging of a golden calf and calling it God. Exodus 33, and we'll pick up the account in verse 1 and continue as we did last week all the way through chapter 34, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you. And I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. 
for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us. As your own possession. Father, in Christ, you have taken many in this room as your own possession, and I pray that you would guide us, that you would teach us today, remind us that we are yours and what kind of God it is to whom we belong. And God, for others here today who still are without Christ, apart from Christ, take them as your own possession today. Speak in this very word so that people come to you in faith and repentance today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You cannot see my face, verse 20, for no man can see me and live. You cannot see my face For no man can see me and live. Here is one of the great statements in all the Bible concerning the holiness of God. Or his transcendence, if you will. God is so holy, so transcendent, so other, so distinct, so separate from us. So much greater than all that he has made, so much higher than all his creation, that we cannot even safely look upon his face. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Last week we pondered God's self-existence from the meaning of his name. In chapter 34, verse 6. And today, beginning with this profound statement here in chapter 33, verse 20, we consider God's holiness, His transcendence, His otherness. R.C. Sproul, in his classic 
book, The Holiness of God, defines God's holiness like this. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. And then noting how we often equate the word holiness with God's moral purity, Sproul goes on and offers this clarification. Purity is not excluded from the idea of the holy. It is contained within it. But the point we must remember is that the idea of the holy is never exhausted by the idea of purity. It includes purity, but is much more than that. It is purity and transcendence. It is transcendent purity. Now, you can hear in Sproul's explanation of holiness those words that I've been borrowing in an effort to explain the God that we see here in Exodus 33, in an effort to define his holiness. Holiness means not just that God is pure, but that he is separate, that he is other, that he is transcendent, that he is far and away above all else that there is in this universe. Holiness, Sproul reminds us, is not just that God is morally pure, but that he is so different from us, so much grander than anything in creation, so lofty and exalted, to borrow from Isaiah, that we melt in his presence. And what we're seeing here in Exodus 33 is a marvelous exhibition of just those qualities that Sproul describes. Transcendence, otherness, separateness, This is why we cannot look on God's face safely because he is so different from us, so lofty, so holy, that to come in the fullness of his presence would stop our hearts from beating. You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And so while Moses is allowed to see God's glory, while he is permitted to see something of God's holiness, it cannot be straight on. It cannot be in the full light of God's face. God's glory must be seen from within the cleft of a rock and only from behind, as it were. Verse 21, then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Think of those times when we experience a solar eclipse. You dare not look at it with the naked eye or through binoculars or even with the mere protection of really good sunglasses. You can only look at it with very specialized equipment, lest the intensity of the rays does serious harm to your eyes. And such it is with the face of God, only to the nth degree. He is so holy, His glory is so effulgent, His face is so resplendent that you cannot survive a sighting of Him face on. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And of course this tells us something not just about God's face, not just about the brightness of the appearance of his glory, but about his very nature. 
It's not just, in other words, that God's manifest appearance is so incandescent that it would incinerate you. That's true. But the reason God's appearance is so bright is because his very nature is so far above our own. His otherness is so great. The gap between who he is and who you and I are is so vast that we would perish if he were to show us that difference all in one sighting. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and only lets him see that glory from behind. And in chapter 34, verse 3, he prohibits everyone else from even setting foot on the mountain on which he is going to reveal himself. And in the 6th of Isaiah, we find that even the angels around God's throne have six wings and they use two of them to shield their faces in the presence of the Holy One. They have no sin, and yet they still don't look at God face on. And so it's not just our sin that makes us unable to see God's face and live. Though sin certainly exacerbates our problems significantly. But even the angels who have no sin do not look at God's face. They do not stand in His presence without shielding their eyes. And so while your sin and mine has widened the gap between us and our Maker unfathomably, the chasm was already far beyond our ability to straddle, simply because He's our Maker, because we are created and He is Creator. And that creature-creator relationship means that God is infinitely greater than us. So much so that a true sighting of that greatness would literally leave us breathless. Does it make sense what I'm saying? If God were to give you a straight on look at his face right now this morning, if he were to allow us to see him this moment in all of his glory, every one of us would perish where we sit. And not only because of our sins, and not merely because of a physical brightness that would overpower us, but also because the sheer magnitude of God's greatness, that great otherness with which we would be confronted, the transcendent beauty and holiness of God would sap you of every ounce of your strength and leave you with nothing but to lay on the floor dead. Isaiah didn't see God's face in his sixth chapter, but he did see God. And he was utterly overwhelmed in his presence. I've heard of more recent instances during times of revival when God was making his gracious presence known to individuals, something even beyond the normal way that he does that for us so often in public and private worship. And the overwhelming nature of God's presence, even the presence of his grace, was such that individuals, though basking in God's glory and enjoying his nearness, yet had to ask him to stay his hand, lest they collapse from the sheer weight of his glory in their presence. And so you can see how overwhelming it would be to catch a full-on glimpse of his face. He is just too much for us. And so God says to Moses, not out of anger, not in his wrath, but for Moses' own good, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me 
and live. Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And here is the holiness of God. He's so different to us, so other, so transparent, so lofty and exalted, not only that no one can approximate to him, but that we cannot even look at him face on without being utterly overwhelmed. No man can see me and live. And I hope that humbles you this morning before your God. But then we need to say that this talk about not seeing God's face, but rather seeing his back, does bring up two very important queries, questions, both of which uh, may have been turning over in your mind, or at least one or the other of them. And the first one goes something like this. I didn't think God had a face, or a back for that matter. Doesn't Jesus say that God is spirit? And isn't that meant to convey to us that God doesn't exist in a physical form like we do? To which the answer is yes, God is spirit. And as our children are learning in that little yellow catechism book by Karen McKenzie, he does not have a body like us. But if that's true, what does all this talk about God's face and his back? How is it that we cannot see God's face and yet Moses can see his back if he doesn't actually have a face or a back? Well, the answer is that though God is not a physical being, though there is no physicality to his essence, yet he can take on physical form from time to time and or physical appearance. Though God is not a physical being, there's no physicality to his essence, to his nature. He can take on a physical form and or a physical appearance. So, for instance, think about the fourth man that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace of blazing fire. I think we're right to understand that the fourth man was actually God, the Son, taking on physical appearance even before his incarnation. And I think we're right to understand something similar about the flame that lit up that bush in the wilderness back in chapter 3 of this book of Exodus. We're told there that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the bush. But then when we find someone speaking from the bush, we discover that the one who's speaking from the bush is God himself. And so here was God appearing to Moses all the way back in chapter 3 of Exodus in the form of a fire. Of course, God is not a fire in a physical sense. And fire is certainly not God, but God appeared to Moses In the flame of a fire. And then we could think about the pillar of cloud and a fire that led Israel through the wilderness. And which we read about today, at least in its cloud form, hovering over the tent with Moses in verses 4 through 11 here of chapter 33. That pillar of cloud was actually God making himself known in a visible way to Moses and to all the other people of Israel. And again, it doesn't mean God is a cloud or that God is a fire, but he did often show himself by appearing as one or the other so that his people might know his presence among them and so that they might see some little glimpse of his glory. 
And we find this often throughout the Old Testament. God appearing to his people visually. God accommodating himself to his people's understanding by appearing in some physical form such that even though his essence is spiritual and not physical, yet his people could still see something of his glory. And often, as in the furnace with Daniel's friends, that appearing of his glory was in some kind of human-like form. And that's what we find here in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. When God speaks of Moses seeing his back, but not his face, it's not actually that God has a physical body, but that he's going to appear to Moses in bodily form so that Moses might glimpse something of his glory. And so the idea when God says that Moses can see his back, but not his face, is not that God has either of those literally, but that there is a way that God can grant Moses' request from back in verse 18. There is a way he can show Moses his glory in a way that Moses can see it with his eyes, and yet God is going to do so without showing him so much as to undo Moses. And so he will appear to him in human-like physical form, but Moses will not see the face of that form. He won't see the most revealing part of that form, but only see God from behind. Which is as much to say, he can't see everything that there is to see in God. He cannot see him straight on, as we've been saying. He cannot see him fully, but he can see him truly from behind, as it were. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so the whole idea of this passage is not to teach us that God has a physical body, but for God to use what we and Moses know about the human body to teach us something about our relationship to God. Namely, that there is only so much of God that we can safely see without it completely overwhelming us. Like a solar eclipse, we cannot look at him face on. He is just that transcendent, just that holy And so that answers our questions about how God, who is spirit, can speak of himself as though he has a body. But there's another question that needs to be asked. Because this whole idea that God says, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen, my face shall not be seen, raises a question, namely that though God twice tells Moses that his face shall not be seen, nevertheless, we read back in chapter 33, verse 11, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So what gives here? Surely the idea that God spoke to Moses face to face conveys that they looked on one another's faces somehow as they spoke, right? So how could that have happened in verse 11? And now in verse 20, God is telling us that his face cannot be safely seen. Well, I think the explanation, and I hope this makes sense, is that there's God's face, and then there's God's face. In other words, think about how the Lord appeared to Abraham in human form back in the book of Genesis concerning the matter of Sodom and Gomorrah, or how he appeared to the parents of Samson in human form to tell them that they were going to have a child, or to Joshua as a military captain. 
In none of those cases are we given any indication that they only saw God from behind or that there was a veil over his face because he was appearing to them already in those instances with his glory mostly veiled. In all three cases, there may have been some things that led you to believe maybe this is not a mere man, and yet there may have been some things that could lead someone to see this person passing by and presume that it was simply a man. So that Abraham and Samson's parents and Joshua each saw God's face and lived. But what I'm suggesting to you is that there's a difference between what they saw in those instances and what God is referring to here in verses 20 through 23. There's a difference between God's face and his face. There's a difference between God taking on human form to come down and speak to someone, as in all those other cases, and his taking on human form in order to show Moses his glory in the cleft of that rock in verses 20 through 23. One way we might say it is that God can show us a face without necessarily showing us his face. God can show us a face without necessarily showing us his face. Now, again, we know that God doesn't have a physical face, but his face, in the case of Moses here, is a temporary manifestation of his glory. And when we understand that that's what we mean, we can say that God can show man a face. He can come in a human form that does not convey that glory, or not very fully, but then he can show his face in a way that does show it far beyond what we can handle. And I suggest that that must have been what was going on when God spoke to Moses face to face inside that famous tent of meeting. God showed his glory to his people in the cloud that would hover over the tent. And as he spoke to Moses, he showed him a face without showing him the face of God. He showed him a face. He, he came in some sort of form that Moses could look upon, just like God did with Joshua and Abraham and the parents of Samson. He showed him a face, but he did not show him the face that he is going to shield him from later in the chapter. He appeared to Moses in the tent of meeting without overwhelming him with a straight-on look at his glory. And so what we're learning really from this entire section of Exodus is that God may show himself to us truly without showing himself to us fully so as to overwhelm us with his glory. So that when God says in verse 20, no one can see me, no man can see me and live, it's clear from the very next verses that he doesn't mean we can't see him at all. What he means is, you can't see me straight on and live. And it's the same thing when he talks about his face in two different ways. When he says, my face shall not be seen, it doesn't mean that no one has ever spoken to God face to face. What it means is no one has seen God's fullness. No one has seen God's face unfiltered. He can show us a face without showing us his face, without exposing us to his full-on glory. And again, all of this points to God's holiness. We've wound our way trying to untie a couple of knots concerning God's face so that we might come back to this main point. And what is the main point? 
that when we understand what is meant by God's face, here in verses 20 through 23, when we realize that his face is representative of his fullest manifestation of his glory and of his person, what this passage has to say to us is that God in his fullness is too much for you and I to handle. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. When I was in seminary, a bolt of lightning struck right outside the patio door of our apartment, so close that the clap of thunder literally sent me to the floor. But I tell you that in comparison to what would happen to me if I got a straight-on glimpse of God's glory, even just a glimpse of his glory straight on, that thunderclap would appear merely like one of my kids closing a closet door a little too loudly. That is how magnificent, how separate, how other, how holy is the Lord our God. No man can see me and live. But... Here's the other side of this passage before we conclude. Namely that in spite of the fact that we cannot see God straight on, in spite of the fact that we cannot see his face, nevertheless God is in the habit of showing people his back. He is in the habit of allowing us to see him. Not so fully that we die, but fully enough that we worship fully enough that we're able to know him, fully enough that we hopefully long for more. And for evidence of that fact, again, just consider these two chapters. God didn't show Moses all his glory back in that tent of meeting, back in verses 4 through 11, but he showed him something of it, something evidently that made him long for more down in verse 18. And not only did God show himself to Moses, but the pillar of the cloud, that visible appearance of his glory that rested over the tent, meant that God was showing himself so that all Israel could see him too. In verses 9 and 10, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. All the people saw the pillar of cloud. God showing himself to his people. And then when Moses asked for even more, for an even clearer sighting of God, while God warned him that he could not see his face, yet look how he accommodated Moses' request just the same. Hiding him in the cleft of the rock, covering him with his hand, not so that Moses wouldn't see, but so that he could see from a place of safety that which he was able to handle. And what I'm trying to show you in these instances all through this passage is that though God cannot be seen fully, yet he desires to be seen nonetheless. He's not hiding from us. I heard Louis Giglio use this illustration years ago, and I've had my own children now, and so I can see it in full color. Namely, that small children, round about the age of my son Levi, are usually not very good at the game of hide-and-seek. And not merely because they seem inherently unable to sit still and quiet for more than about 15 seconds, 
but also because they love the part about being found, right? That's not the object of the game, is to be found, but they love that part best. And so you can put a two-year-old inside the clothes hamper and cover him up with all the dirty clothes, but very soon it begins to sound as though you have talking socks. Because as soon as the cry is heard, ready or not, here I come, out from the clothes hamper comes the cry, here I am, I'm in the dirty clothes. And, and Giglio says, and we mean it reverently, this is what God is like. He loves to be found. He loves to be seen. He loves to show his glory to his people in ways that we can handle. And so here he is showing himself in the burning bush, in the pillar of cloud, in the tent with Moses, passing Moses by on the mountain and proclaiming his own personal name in Moses' ear. He loves to be found. And here he is in this book having provided you with over 31,000 verses of his written word. So that while God's revelation of himself comes to us today through our ears rather than through our eyes, he is nevertheless eager to answer the prayers of those today who are willing to say with Moses, show me your glory. He loves to be found. And here he is, best of all, in the person of his son, speaking to us, being found by us, showing himself to us, this time not merely in human appearance or form, but actually in human flesh and nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and what? We saw his Glory. We saw his glory. That's what the Apostle John says about the incarnation of Jesus. God came down in the flesh and we saw his glory. We saw the very thing that Moses longed to see back in Exodus thirty three eighteen. Or as John goes on to say there in chapter 1, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And do you hear what John is saying? He's saying basically the same thing that I've been trying to say from Exodus 33 for the last half hour or so. Namely that God, in His fullness, in the complete manifestation of His glory, cannot be seen. No one has seen God at any time, John says. And yet he goes on to say that God has made Himself known to us just the same. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God loves to be found. He loves to be known. He loves to be seen by His people so much that He became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, including the ways that we have been seeing in the book of Exodus, 
God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, like the way He spoke from the burning bush, like the way He spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, like the way He spoke to Moses face to face, like the way He showed Moses His back and proclaimed His name in His ear, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Which is as much to say that marvelous as Moses' experience was in the cleft of the rock, Jesus is the capstone of it all. Jesus is the revelation of God's glory for all to see. God loves to be found. Indeed, he loves to do the finding so that he is found, Isaiah 65, even by people who are not looking for him. And so he has sent his son into the world, the image of the invisible God, on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost, so that when he finds us, and when we in turn find him, what we will see is the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Did you hear it? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the very thing that Moses longed for here in verse 18, the thing that God gave him a glimpse of in the cleft of that rock, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is to be found by us in the face of Christ. Do you know the face of Christ? Have you beheld God's glory in that face? Has God spoken to you in these last days? In the person of his son? Do you know God through Jesus, who died for sinners and who lives to show us the glory of God in his very own face? It is true what God says to Moses here in verse 20 No man can see me and live. It's true that we cannot see God straight on, we cannot look upon his face. But Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in his face, in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, we gain the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And so I urge you to seek that face. Seek the glory of God in the face of Christ as you find that face written large all throughout the pages of this book. And to those who seek Christ here in this life, Paul has this promise in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now we see, he says. Now I know, he says. But only dimly, only in part. But then, face to face. Now I don't know all that means in terms 
of the limits to seeing God's face that we've discussed today. But I know that when Paul says we will know God face to face, that it means that a day is coming when even what we see now will pale in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. No one has seen God at any time. No one can see God and live. And yet the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And he is passing by again this morning, whispering his name into our ears, explaining to us the Father, showing us his glory. Don't miss him. Don't let Jesus pass you by unnoticed by your eyes, but be sure rather that you can say with the apostle, we saw his glory.